people on live stream can hear us. Uh, just want to welcome you uh, to our service today. Uh, today, obviously, uh, we are coming right at the threshold of the Christmas celebration that we all will enjoy this week coming. And uh, I, I, I was listening as the worship team was singing this morning, thinking about singing Christmas carols and realizing that often it can come from my brain because I have it memorized. And sometimes that inheeds my ability to capture the truth that we're singing. So I wanted to give us just a quick bump on that by reading a passage of Scripture and then reading the verse of one of the songs that we're going to sing in just a few minutes. So John chapter 1 and verse 14 captures what Christmas really is all about. And it is this, the Word became flesh and made His home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. So Christmas is a mystery, right? It is a child born whose name is to be called Jesus, Savior, but also Emmanuel, God, with us. And John 1.14 really captures the essence of that, right? It says the word God became flesh and lived among us. And the reason he did that was so that in that physical body, he could go to Calvary's cross and bear the consequence of my sin and my rebellion. And so as we sing, I trust that you will make the connections in the songs, in the words, between the birth of Christ and the reason for which he came, which was not to give us a day to celebrate, but a day for us to rejoice in the fact that hope of forgiveness from my guilt, from my shame, from my sin is possible because Jesus Christ did come. And that is why this is a season of great joy. Not just the birth, but the reason for that birth that we celebrate today. So one of the songs we'll sing in just a moment is this. Come thou long expected Jesus, the one prophesied, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. And the idea there is that you may long for forgiveness and hope and freedom from shame. And once you know that is found in Christ, that is the springboard or the wellspring, if you will, of joy and hope in our lives. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning as we... Join our hearts together in prayer. And just a quick reminder that our Christmas Eve service is at 5 o'clock, all right? You'll be keeping that in mind. All right, let's join our hearts together in prayer. Father, uh, we are grateful for this season. Uh, it is truly a beautiful time for us to enjoy the sharing of gifts, for us to enjoy relationships and family and all the things that are so very precious to us. Lord, I pray that at the center of our celebration will be that which is most precious. And that is, for, that, is that for each one listening on live stream, sitting in and standing right now in this auditorium, there is hope for forgiveness and freedom from shame, guilt, and sin itself. And so, Lord, this morning as we sing, let our songs be filled with the message of the gospel with the truth that is found in the one who came, whose name is Jesus, God saves. So Lord, this morning we lift up some folks within our church family as well. Uh, we pray for Dave Mercer and Patty as Dave is working through this 
uh, situation with some heart-related issues. We pray for wisdom for him, wisdom for the doctors, God, healing over his body, freedom from all of the struggles related to this uh, current situation that he is facing. We lift Dave up to you, God, and I thank you that he and his wife are people that love you and trust you and lean on you. I pray for those within our church family that have been affected by the COVID virus. Father, we're just asking for quick deliverance by your hand from this sickness and uh, minimization of complications from it, God. We pray that you will rescue those that are wrestling and struggling with that today. We ask that you would pour your blessing over this service. I pray that Doug's uh, mouth would be used by you this morning to communicate your truth that can change our lives. We trust that you will do all of that. And we bring our request to you in that regard in the name of Jesus. We also lift up Diana Kelly, Father, and just continue to pray for release and freedom from the struggle that she is facing, God. We trust that you are able to heal, to work in ways that go way beyond what we would ask or think. And so we pray that blessing over her. I pray that this week with her family would be just a very rich and beautiful season of celebrating and enjoying life together. As we worship you, God. Be central to all we do and be glorified, I pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Let's worship him together. Come down, King of 
of John starts off, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made, and in him was life. And then if we jump a few verses to where Tim read, and I love this. And the Word became flesh. That should move us. The humility and what, what Paul went on to say, the, the self-emptying, we don't know what all that means, but the humility that it took for him to set aside the prerogatives and privileges of deity and come and live among us. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I long for the Lord Jesus to come more fully in my own heart and in my own life.
little Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins. Release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel, strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to The Apostle Paul went on to say that there is but one mediator between God and man, between heaven and earth. But it's interesting what he says next. He doesn't say the Lord Jesus Christ. He says specifically the man, Christ Jesus. I love that because in his humanity, he bridged the gap in his, um, in his combined natures, the dual nature that he had, he, he bridged the gap between God and man and opened up a way for us to know God, for us to know our creator. There is one mediator between heaven and earth, 
the man Christ Jesus. Father, we ask that by your Spirit, you would turn our hearts and our minds toward Christ, toward Emmanuel, he who dwells with us, who lives with us, who makes his tents with us. Lord, we pray that you would 
do that and drive that truth deep in our hearts that we would know Christ better, love him better, and serve him better. Do that for our good, but ultimately for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to have you here today. Uh, children can be dismissed to junior church at this time. Be a good time to go out and do there. Um, if you uh, have your Bibles, you can turn over to Isaiah chapter 7. Um, I have an ambitious task before me to actually work through two chapters. Um, so we'll see how that all goes. We have a lot of, uh, I, I love the Christmas season um, for a whole bunch of reasons, but I, don't you love singing the Christmas carols? Yes. Like it never, never gets old to me. Um, and one of them that comes to mind, I, I would say, as I think about it, when you think about what just, the, 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 the names for Jesus, the terms for Jesus, obviously Jesus, Savior, come to mind. But once you say one of the big ones is Emmanuel. And so I just, just the first verse on O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, a text that that we don't know the exact source. It goes back. It was done by somebody in Latin initially, translated uh, into English in the 18, 1800s. But it says, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. The only hope is Emmanuel. And what I'd like to do today that particular term, we're most familiar with it when we read Matthew chapter 1, and Matthew actually says in Matthew chapter 1 that Isaiah is being fulfilled in what is happening here in Jesus' day. And so the word Emmanuel becomes really significant to us. But, but, but I want to go back and look at the first time it was actually used back in Isaiah. And I, I want to talk you through the passage and ultimately bring you back to Emmanuel in the whole process. Does that make sense? What was true of our day, what was true in the first century, was true 700 years before the time of Christ. That the world was an uncertain place filled with danger and promoting fear. True in our day? True in the first century? True in 700 BC? Absolutely. Now, one of the things you notice, you say, Finkbeiner, don't you like always have a PowerPoint? You're right, I don't have a PowerPoint today. I'm making you the PowerPoint today, right? So let me, let me just tell you how we're doing this. We'll see how it goes. Um, and I, I, have, I have some actors here that don't know their, their actually roles that they're playing, but, but that's okay. But I want you to imagine... The, the ancient world, and we're kind of moving south to north, okay? And this group over here is, well, actually, everybody over here is what we call the southern kingdom. It's made up of two tribes. It's Judah, okay? Now, the people over there, they're the faithful in Judah, what we call the remnant, all right? So there's the remnant in Judah. Hi, remnant in Judah. Good to have you here. 
And one of their representatives, I know we call him Bill, but I'm going to call him Isaiah. Isaiah there would be one of our representatives. So if you view Bill as, as Isaiah and the people that are kind of in his ilk, th there they are. But, but you're part of a much bigger nation, Judah, which is in the south. Ahaz was a wicked king. We'll make Tim Ahaz, okay? All right, so if, if that's okay, Tim, I, I thought he would be all right with that. Yeah, I was thinking that you were Jake, and I thought, ah, I'm going to go with you on this one, right? No. And, and the, the situation with you guys, and we're role-playing. I'm not saying you're really like this. Okay, so just work with me here. These people, some of them are religious. They're nominal. They're kind of doing their own thing. But they're not committed followers of, of Yahweh. They'll serve whoever works their side of the street, including themselves. Okay? So that's Judah at large. That's the followers. Okay? Now, we're coming north. And as we come north, I, I, I needed five sections, so I'm making you guys two sections here, okay? So that's what we're going to do. As we come north a little bit farther, we come to what we call the northern kingdom, which, which is Israel. Ten tribes. Much bigger than Judah, okay? And I know it doesn't work scale-wise here, but you're much bigger. And their leader is a guy by the name of Pekah. I don't know. Steve, that's you, I guess. All right, so there you go. Pekah. And, and, and you have Israel, and then north of them is what we would call Syria. In the ancient world, they called it Aram. Um, Dave. Dave is resin. He is the king of Aram, Syria, right there. So we got Syria, we got Pekah in Israel, we got Ahaz and Judah, and the remnant inside of Judah. Now, I left you guys out. Okay, I don't want to do that. So if you go a little bit farther north, you have Assyria. And if I could say it like this, Judah was like a mouse. Israel was bigger. They were like a rat. Aram was like a, a rat. But Assyria was like a cat. And they were big. They handle rats and, and mice, the whole thing. Bill is Tiglag Pileser. Okay? That's his kingdom. It's big. It's powerful. It doesn't have anything to do with Yahweh and God. It thinks it can crush the whole thing. All right? So there are different groups. So as I work through 1 Corinthians, I'm 1 Corinthians. That's a good book, too. But we'll, <laughs> if you can find this in 1 Corinthians, we should talk. Okay. So I work through Isaiah 7. What you're going to find is this group is not, it's going to be talked about. You're going to be talked about. You're going to be talked to, Tim in particular. And you're going to be talked to through Isaiah. Okay, they are our players. And you got to think about yourself. If you're a little mouse living in antiquity, and you know what happened? This cat is big. And it's taking up more and more territory all the time. So what happens is you develop alliances. And these two groups develop an alliance. And they figure if they can get enough rats and mice together, maybe they can push off the cat. Do you see? So they're an alliance, and they come to Ahaz and to his ilk, and they say, join our alliance. And he says, no. And with that in mind, 
we come to for Isaiah chapter 7. It's a scary time because this group is against him. And although he's trying to work in tandem somewhat with them, you can't trust them for anything. Listen to what the text says. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezim of Iram, where's Rezim? There he is right there. Okay, so we got him there. And Pekah, there's Pekah right there, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. It's, it's like Isaiah's already given you the end of the story before he even tells you the story. He just wants you to know, at the end of the day, you guys are not going to be successful against them. But, okay. But then he goes flashback. He goes back and tries to explain it. Verse 2. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. Ephraim is sometimes just another term for the, for the northern kingdom. Okay, sometimes you'll see the word Israel, sometimes Ephraim. It's referring to the same group. Has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz, right here, and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. You've seen some of these good storms, haven't you? And those winds come by and those trees start going. I worry about it like in my front yard sometime. Like, please do not fall over on my house. You've had that feeling. And he explains, he says, everybody in the kingdom is shaken and they're scared. Because rats are bigger than mice. That's how it works. But God has a way of intervening with our problems, doesn't he? Verse 3, then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son, Shear Yashab. How would, you like to, how would you like to first of all come up with that name for somebody and then try to call them for supper every day? I don't know, maybe they just called him Shub for short or something. I don't know, whatever. But, but, but the name, his name literally means a remnant will return. So Isaiah has a son, his name is, a remnant will return, and he comes up and he's going to talk to the king. Why in the world would you name your son, a remnant will return? You know why? As wicked as this nation has become, with its ups and its downs, and ultimately it's going to go into exile, God would still be faithful to his promises. And even his son is a reminder a remnant will return. Go up, go up, you and your son, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool. And they probably, they were working to make sure the water system was the way it should be so they'd have plenty of water if, if, if they're going to be besieged. On the road to the launderer's field, say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. They are not the first words that, that Ahaz is thinking. Can you imagine that? I mean, you're working like the thing. We got to have this water system ready if they do this. And it comes up, um, be calm. Don't be afraid. You're going like, what, what's this guy saying? Do not lose heart because these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Because, that's, how he, that's, that's how you're talked about, I'm just saying. Okay. Um, 
because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the sons of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's sons have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart, divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabeel king over it. I don't even know who Tabeel is. Nobody knows. It just means they're going to come and they're going to say, these Davidic kings, they're out. We're putting this other guy in, bottom line. This is what the sovereign Lord says. And folks, here's what's amazing to me. When he speaks at this point, Ahaz comes to power around 735, okay? It's probably around the time that Isaiah has the vision in Isaiah 6. We don't know all the exact time frames. But this king and his people were wicked. And yet God still initiates, doesn't he? And what does he say? It will not take place. This group is going to come in and try to wipe you out. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the heads of Aram of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The heads of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son, Pekah. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So he looks at Ahaz, and he says, Ahaz, they're going to be gone. And folks, think about it. It's 735 A.D., Roughly. In 732, Assyria is going to come in and wipe these two groups. Just wipe them up. Now, it will be 722 when Israel is actually taken into captivity. 65 years later, another ruler of Assyria is going to even be scattering and putting more foreigners back in this land. Even more than before. And so he says in 65 years, you won't even be able to recognize the people there because what I'm going to do. So he says, Ahaz, trust me. You can trust me. It's hard as, and it's going to be hard. God's going to allow some things. A lot of Judah, Judah soldiers are going to die in this battle. But this group will not ultimately win, Isaiah will say. The sovereign God will not allow it. Again, in, in his kindness, look at what God does in verse 10. And again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. Can you imagine that one? You're talking about like a genie dream. A wish, you know what I mean? You know, you've seen with the genie, you can wish for anything you want, uh, right? You know, we we kind of chuckle about it, but you imagine the God of the universe who has just made a statement looks at this king who is wicked, and is so gracious that he even says, "You name the sign to show that I will do this, that I will not allow them ultimately to have victory over you, and I will do it." Could God be any more gracious than that? Ahaz's response sounds pious, but it isn't. Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. 
And it sounds like, oh, he's just being really pious. But as you read on, what you find is what he's basically saying is, I don't believe in Yahweh. I'm not going to play this game, but I'll give a good response. Yahweh should not be tested. Yahweh has just asked you for a sign. It's not a test if he initiates. But in his wickedness, in his disregard for Yahweh, he gives this pious response. And then what happens from verse 13, running all the way over into um, chapter 8, you're going to have God speaking his own sign to this nation. And he's going to speak to this nation, and he's going to say two things to this group right here. Well, you're included in it at some level, but to this group. He's going to say, I still keep my promises, and I will deliver from them. But I also will judge, because I will allow that group over there to almost, matter of fact, the way he talks about it here, it's, have you ever been like in water, like before you know how to swim very long and you go out and you're, you're like on your tippy toes, right? Just trying to stay up above the water. You know what that's like as a kid? That's how it's pictured here. This group will sweep in and it will take you up and the only tippy, you'll be on your tippy toes and the only thing above water will be Jerusalem itself. But even from them, I won't let them have more than that. Because I'm the sovereign God. But there is both deliverance and judgment coming to you. And then he's going to turn in chapter 8 to this group over here. And he's going to say, trust me. Fear me. Wait for me. Okay? That, that, that's how it's progressing. I'm just watching my time. I'm going to have to probably look at some of the blocks. You may want to go back and read it. It's great stuff. Does that make sense? That's the scenario. That's what he's speaking into. Verse 13. And this is a very popular verse, and I'm going to try to explain it, if I can, in a way that makes sense. So here we go. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? You know, your pious statement just doesn't cut it. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. It's going to be a simple sign, but it's going to be a clear sign nonetheless. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel. I'm going to keep reading, and we'll come back because I know what you're thinking. He will be eating curds and honey, when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the, good, the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings that you dread, right here, will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser and company. Do you see what he's saying? Do you see how this is developing? Now, you say, Finkbeiner, what's going on here? Because doesn't Matthew say, 
A virgin will conceive and bear a son. You'll call him Emmanuel. Doesn't that refer to Jesus? Isn't that what Matthew says? Well, when you read this, you go, it sounds like it's referring to a kid in their day. Doesn't it? It sounds like there's going to be this child and the virgin, whoever this person is, is going to call him Emmanuel. And before this person knows how to choose good and evil, which, what's what's that? Four or five years of age? Some debate on on, on some of those things in antiquity. You say, I I know, my kids learned it very early, but I'm just saying. Um, but, But whatever that time frame is, he says, in that time period, you're going to be eating curds and milk and all this kind of stuff. You're thinking, well, that sounds pretty good. It's not good. It's not good. When they went into Israel, it was a land filled with milk and honey. But they were able to bring the culture in there and civilize things, and it was wonderful. When a land goes back to milk and honey, it means that all that civilized stuff has been destroyed, and you're back living simply off the land again. And what he's saying is there's going to be a period of time. It's going to be rough. This group is going to try something. It will not ultimately succeed. And it will be a hard time as this child is growing up. But let me tell you something. Even though it's hard, before that point, this group will be gone. They'll still be after effects living hard off the land. Fair enough. But this group will be gone. Now, when you read that, it doesn't sound like it has anything to do with Jesus, does it? Do you see the challenge? And so some scholars have come to this text of more of a liberal persuasion, and they said, look, this is just about this kid, and this virgin was a virgin when the prophecy was given, but she ended up sleeping with a guy, somebody, whoever it is, and having a kid. There was nothing miraculous in the fact that she was a virgin because when she had the kid, she wasn't a virgin. Okay? And on the other end, at least what I was taught growing up, this is really stepping out of the storyline and just talking about the ultimate sign, the ultimate Jesus Christ. Pops to Jesus and pops back into the story again. And then there's a mediating position. And the mediating position says, yes, both. It is both initially looking at something that goes on in Isaiah's day but ultimately looking at something that will happen in the future. Let me ask you a question. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Who said that? Jesus. Jesus. Do you know where it comes from? Psalm 22. David said it. So David said it. No, Jesus said it. No, David said it. Jesus. Yes. They both said it. And often when you move from the Old Testament to the New, because God is the God of all of history, you can have something initially happening, but then everything gets escalated and ultimately finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And and, and I would be of the persuasion on this text that it has both a near and a far referent. Now, what the liberal would say to me is, think, Bonner, you're sucking that out of your thumb. The only reason you're saying that is because you're a Jesus guy and you believe in the New Testament. And I would say, nope, I'm not sucking it out of my thumb 
because we see that happen again and again with prophecy. And I would argue something else. As the ultimate child is mentioned in chapter 9, it is only referring to Jesus. So Isaiah is writing about a near, and there's a far, and by the time you get to the end of this section, he's only emphasizing the far, Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So even within Isaiah, you're forward-looking. Even though he still looks at the present, he's ultimately looking here. And I would say this, and there's debate over how the word virgin is used, should it be translated um, maiden, young woman, something along those lines. Even if you translate it maiden, a maiden typically is a virgin, okay? So I would argue this woman is clearly a virgin. And in Ahaz's day, she is a virgin who will sleep with a man who will have a son called God with us. But the way it escalates when you go to the New Testament is you have a virgin who doesn't sleep with a man and has a son. Because as Isaiah 9 tells us, this child born is also the mighty God. Do you see? So that there's a movement from one to the other. I know this gets complicated. You say it's right before Christmas. Why are you doing this to us? Uh, I'm just saying it's because it's, it's, it's in the text. Okay, so we, we got to deal with the text. So I think that's what's going on. So as he's looking here at the near and talks about it, the only ultimate hope will be that God is with us in an ultimate way, which we're going to come to as we develop in the passage. All right. Stay, are you with me? Have I lost you? Got Tig Life Beheat. Please, you guys are all over there. Okay, we're coming back talking about each one. All right. Everybody know their part. All right. So, in two sweeps then, he's now going to turn. He's going to look at this group right here. He's going to talk about the fact that regardless of what you guys have done, God will deliver ultimately from them. But God will also judge because of your lack of faith and the fact that you trust others other than him. So he's going to do that in two waves. And then he's going to come to you guys. Okay? First wave. Uh, look at what he says here in verse uh, 18. Uh, th th actually, this is, this is part of that wave. In that day, talking about Assyria, the Lord will whistle for flies from the Nile in Egypt and bees from the land of Assyria. Anybody like flies? Flies can be so annoying, especially if they bite. Um, the camp that, that I, I minister to uh, each summer, and some of you, some of you young people have been there. Um, it's better now, but years gone by, they had a mushroom farm right next to the, the, to the, to the camp. And man, would they get flies at certain times of the year that drove you crazy. You would just be, I remember one time, she's not here, but I'll just say it. My wife was singing one time and a fly flew into her mouth. And in a way that only my wife could do, she swallowed it and kept right on singing. <laughs> yeah, you ask about it sometimes. Too funny. Sure, I mean, sure, I mean I'd be like, <coughs> and she would just, and goes right on God. Too funny. Anyway, all these flies, it's just, it's just an annoyance. And, and so he says, there's going to be, Egypt's going to have influence here. It's going to be annoying like flies. And these guys are going to be like bees because when they hang out, they sting. And he's going to unpack what all that entails running all the way down to the end of the chapter. That's the first wave. Then in verse 8, God turns 
and talk specifically to Isaiah. Where's Isaiah? Bill. Bill Isaiah right there. Okay. So now he's talking to Bill. But Bill, he's talking to you about this group right here before he talks about that group. And he does this again. The Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen. Now, how do you like this for the name? I think this is the longest name in the Bible. Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Now, how would you like to call that child for, for dinner every day? Could drive you out of your mind. I, I think they just called him Baz for sure, but whatever. So, so his name, on the other hand, means swift to the, to the plunder, quick to the spoil. So he's got one kid whose name is the remnant will return. The remnant will return. He's got another kid's, kid's name that is this stuff is going to happen really fast where this group is going to get spoiled. You see? So two sons that say an awful lot about the condition of, of, of the nation. All right. So here's the boy. So I, 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 would, I would argue, and again, it's debated, the, the Emmanuel figure in, in, in Israel's day is either, I think the two best options is, it's either the son of a woman that's going to be part of the harem of the king, and maybe, uh, possible, I, I think much more likely because it's parallel, I think it's talking about this boy right here. I think it's Isaiah's son, okay? Which... All I can figure is that his wife has died, and what's going to happen now is with a second woman who becomes his wife. It's, uh, anyway, I don't want to get into all that. It could take us a lot of places. But anyway, so I called in Uriah the priest and Zechariah, son of uh, Jebekiah, as reliable witnesses for me. Then I made love to the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, name him Baz. For, I'm shortening it there. For before the boy knows how to say my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried away by the king of Assyria. So he's getting even more specific with his name. You name him, it's going to happen quick because before the, this child is two years old, so if it's about 734 by 732, Assyria is going to sweep in and you're toast. Just, it's finished. Two years. It's going to happen quick. God's not going to wait. All right. So he gets even more specific with his second name. The Lord spoke to me again. And now he's going to move from talking about your deliverance from them to your judgment from them. And even that judgment, God is going to be gracious. Listen to what he says. And I want you to watch for the name Emmanuel again. It appears two more times in this passage. Look at verse 6 of chapter 8. Because this people has rejected the gentle flowing waters of Shiloh. That's how God views himself. It's this, this stream that just keeps flowing with pure and wonderful water. And it's gentle and it's wonderful. No, no. You've said no to that. And you've rejoiced over Rezin and the sons of Remaliah. You've come and said, well, we should be worried about these guys instead, Israel and Aram. Therefore, the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates, the king of Assyria with all of his pomp. 
It will overflow all its banks, run all of its banks. In other words, it's going to wipe you out. But look what happens to Judah. And sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to its very neck, comes up to Jerusalem itself. Its outstretched wings will cover the breadth of your land. Assyria will bring some terrible things to you, Judah. And then you have this comma in this statement, Emmanuel. Some translations will say, oh, Emmanuel. God, is, it, is this what it means for you to be with us? I thought, I thought you being with us would just mean all deliverance. But this hurts. And God says, yes, it does. But even in that, I am gracious because now I got a word for Assyria and here it is. Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen to all your distant lands. Prepare for battle, be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, it will not stand. Why? For, and again, it's the word Emmanuel, often translated here, God with us. Do you see what he's saying? God is with us, and in being with us, he will both deliver and judge, but in that judgment, it will be measured. Because you have a place to play, Assyria, and God will not allow you to do more than what he's designed, and then he will stop you. And you will one day be taken over by Babylon anyway. And then Babylon by Persia. And then Persia by Greece. And then Greece by Rome. And this is just how it works. All these waves again and again. And in the midst of that, the faithful are always crying out, Emmanuel, God, we need you to be with us. Do you see? So he talks about both deliverance and judgment. And then in verse 11, he talks to you. What does he say to the faithful? Listen. This is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me to follow the way, um, to follow, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Um, and it's, it, I have the, I'm reading the New, New International Version. It, it doesn't record the first word. Some of your translations may have the word for. And here's the point. In verse 11, as he talks to you, he's talking to you about what does it mean for God to be with us as his faithful who are struggling with all of this. So he's continuing the same theme. And he says, this is what it means for you faithful folks. What I want you to do is I want you to fear God and I want you to wait for him. Look what he says. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you should regard as holy. He is the one you should fear. He is the one that you should dread. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone <clears throat> that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. 
For the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall. They will be broken. They will be ensnared. They will be captured. So he looks at you and he says this. You know what? People have two options with God. God will either be their sanctuary, that holy place, or he will be a rock of offense, a stone that falls upon you. I, I, this has never quite made sense to me. But if you ever find yourself driving down the um, highway, and you're, you know, you're going like 70 miles an hour. It's, it's a 65 mile an hour. Just to be clear on this. But like in Pennsylvania, I'm going along. I'm sure they do this in Jersey too. But you're going along really, really fast. And you come and there's these rock formations right there by, by the road. And they always say, watch falling rocks. Like, what good would that do? You know, I'm going 70 miles an hour. Oh, look at that. That rock's falling right in my car right now. It just never made any sense. I don't even know why they put that up there. I'm sure there's logic. I guess you're supposed to look at, hey, is that a falling rock? I don't know. Whatever. Whatever. But this text says there's only two options. He will either be your sanctuary that you can go and find refuge and security in. Oh, he will be that stone that falls and destroys. Do you know when you come to the Gospels and the New Testament, that is the exact image that's used of Jesus Christ. As he cries out to a nation, he says, how often would I have gathered you together as a hen does her chicks? And you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And in the midst of that, he uses the imagery of if you do not accept me as savior, you will face me as a king, which will be like a rock and a stone falling upon you. Things really don't change much, do they, folks? Whether it's 700 BC or the first century or the 21st century. So he looks at this group. He says, you can fear God. Take him seriously. Find refuge in him. Don't listen to all the theories out there. And all Isaiah can say coming out of that, I love it in verse 16. He says, bind up this testimony of warning and seal it up, up God's instruction among my disciples. And he doesn't mean by that, hide it from everybody. He means, guys, I want to put it down in print so you don't ever forget how important it is. Bind it up for my people. And you know what Isaiah says? He's living in 700 BC. He doesn't know how this whole thing's going to get fleshed out. But in 700 BC, he says to himself this. I will wait for the Lord. Who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob right now. But I will put my trust in him. Here am I. And the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord God Almighty who dwells in Mount Zion. When you see my kids, the remnant will return. Destruction's coming. I believe it. And we're going to see stuff happen in the near term. But I must wait for God to ultimately do what only God can do. Do, do, do you see? I mean, that's their world. God with us. God with us is a wonderful idea. I love it. But it's not just warm and fuzzy. 
It has an edge to it, right? Depending upon what people do with that. I love this next section. Try, I want to read through it because now what Isaiah is going to do, the Isaiah who's waiting is the Isaiah who's going to talk about, look, again to you, I want you to be faithful because the way this group is going is a life that is marked by nothing but darkness and distress. But, but wait, because I'm going to do something in the future. Okay? Listen, this is what he says, verse 19. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. Isaiah says, I've written it down. Believe that. Don't go that way. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. That darkness will never leave. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Well, that's a bummer at Christmas time to say, Finkbeiner. But if you don't have God, what else do you have? I I was at, um, my kids um, sent Sherry and I to, uh, got us tickets to see Boccacelli. Boccacelli, is that the guy's name? Yeah, okay. I'm not into uh, opera. My wife is. So I went with my wife. But that guy's got one great voice. Have you ever heard that guy sing? Anyway, I won't, I won't try to do it, but it really, it was, it was really well done. We were, we were in Philly for it, and like, we were like three rows from the top, so I need like binoculars to even see this guy. But he, he was really, really, really good. But one of the songs he sang was, um, it's an old song, you know, Don't Worry, you, You'll Never Walk Alone or something like that. And it was really warm and fuzzy. And it's a, though you go through this dark, difficult time, it's okay. It's going to be bright at the end and blah, 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 blah. And you know what I thought to myself? That is only true for Christians. It's only true for us. But it's a lie to a lost world because if you don't know Christ, all there is is distress and destruction. That's it. But to the people of God, look what he says. In verse nine, chapter nine, verse one. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of, and the land of Naphtali, which, which was the far northern part of Israel. And so when foreign countries came in, guess where they came first? Right there. You got it. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Do you know when Matthew writes his gospel? He not only refers back to the Emmanuel passage, but in chapter four of his book, he refers to that very passage right there. He knows Isaiah 7, 8, 9. He's read them. And he says, 
There is coming a day, Isaiah says to his faithful people, there's coming a day when light will come. And Tim preached on it last week from Luke chapter 1. You will find the imagery coming up again. Jesus is the light in the midst of darkness. He is the the dawning, the, the noonday sun for those who don't have anything. He's the light for the dark, John chapter 1. Again and again and again. And Isaiah is saying, I have to wait, but there's a day coming when for those who know the Messiah, they don't have to live in distress. They don't have to live under destruction. Rather, you will enlarge the nation and increase their joy. They rejoice before you as a people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of the Midian's defeat by Gideon, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Do you mean God is going to do something in history that will ultimately end in the fact that there'll be no more war? Yeah. Not just for the nation of Israel, sure, but for everybody. Where someone's going to say, I got a boot here for soldiers. Might as well burn it. We don't need that anymore. Won't need it. How? How will that happen? Could the first word in verse 6, 4, because. A child to us is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. How can he be called Mighty God like if he's a child born? Like that term is used in the next chapter for Yahweh alone. So is he God or is he human? Yep, you got it. And so Isaiah is looking forward. He's saying, we need a child. And this child is born, and he doesn't give you the subject because it's going to be the unique act of God upon a virgin who will give birth, will conceive, and will give birth as a virgin, according to Matthew. There is a child coming, an ultimate child coming. And this child, when you describe him, he is a wonderful counselor. He is, a, sometimes it's just translated miraculous. Where something happens, you go like, what in the world? And you think of all the stuff Jesus did in his earthly ministry, all the miraculous activity. He's a wonderful counselor. That means he's the most wise that ever lived and he doesn't need the advice of anybody. Most kings need advisors, not this king. No way. He's the incredible, miraculous counselor. He's the mighty God. No, you you mean he's representing God. No, he's the mighty God. You go like, okay. Yeah, because he's the God man. Everlasting father. You go like, wait a second. Isn't he God the son? Like, how's that all work? Sometimes the word father is used from in a kingly role, the relationship between a king to his subjects. He's like a father to them. But this father, this, this ruler, is the ruler from eternity. 
He's not just like any ruler. He's the everlasting ruler. He has no beginning. He has no end. And yet he's a child born to us. Wow. And he's the prince of peace. Of the greatness of his government, of his government and peace, there will be no end. Don't you love that? Every four years, you and I get to vote in or out the most powerful person in the world, the president of the United States. Sometimes you're like that, sometimes you don't. It just depends who's in. Can I say it like this? You ain't never going to vote him out. He is king forever. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom and, and over his kingdom, establishing justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And just so you didn't get, just so you get the point, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish it. So if you're just saying like, well, so who's going to pull that off? God, <laughs> let me just settle that one with you. Folks, in Isaiah's day, 700 BC, God was with them, bringing deliverance, but also bringing judgment. And that would transpire again and again but the ultimate blessing is that God is not just with us through a human being. God is with us as a human being when you come to the New Testament. That's unbelievable, folks. But you know what? With that great, incredible, marvelous privilege comes greater responsibility. Because if God is with us, then what happens when he comes to his own, but his own received him not? But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Do you see? I would argue that God is God in all times. He calls people to trust and fear him because he is actively working. But in the incarnation, everything gets upped. Because he is now with us as the divine human king. And this divine human king, you read some of this stuff and you say, yeah, but Finkbinder, we still have war in the world's world. You're right. That's true. But what he's done in the first coming has completely changed the trajectory. And we wait as they were supposed to wait in the first century, I'm sorry, in the 700 BC, as they're supposed to wait in the first century, so we wait in the 21st century for the second coming of Christ, in which all this stuff gets fully realized. It gets started in his first coming. So the question is this. Will we, who live in the 21st century, be so enamored by the wonder of what Christ has done by being God with us, Emmanuel, in the first century. Will we live in such a way that we live in light of that and we live in light of the fact that God with us is coming back and allow those two great principles to cause us to be men and women that, that have received Christ as Lord and Savior 
and give our whole lives to live for him. So let me just finish, because I've gone a little bit longer than I should have, sorry, by reading a few more stanzas of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Can I do that? O come, thou wisdom from on high, and order all things far and nigh. To us the path of knowledge show, and teach us in her ways to go. O come, thou rod of Jesse's stem, from every foe deliver them that trust thy mighty power to save and give them victory over the grave. O come, thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high that we no more cause to sigh. O come, thou day spring from on high and cheer us by thy drawing nigh. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. O come, desire of nations, come. Bind in one the hearts of all mankind. Bid, bid every strife and quarrel cease and fill the world with heaven's peace. That will only happen through Jesus Christ, ultimately in his second coming. But we as his followers, those who have trusted him as Lord and Savior, should be lost in the wonder that God is with us. He has come. He resides in us now. And he's coming back for us one day. Remember that. Wherever you find yourself, whatever you're going through, you as a believer in Christ can take refuge in him. Father, Emmanuel, God is with us. Lord, we, we, we see that fleshed out all through the Old Testament. But Lord, we see it in flesh with Jesus Christ in the New Testament. God is actually with us in human form, the divine. God, overwhelm us with the wonder of the incarnation. Overwhelm us with the, the wonder that we can know you through him as we trust Christ as Lord and Savior for, for, for the forgiveness of sins. And Lord, like Isaiah, who had to wait 700 years, it was long after he died, help us to be men and women who wait. Wait for the final part of history in which you come back and create a new heaven and a new earth. And Father, for that we greatly rejoice. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Please stand with me. Come thou long expected Jesus come to set thy people free from our fears and sins release us let us find our rest in thee israel strength and consolation Thou art, dear desire 
recognize your eternal merit and by your spirit that we would recognize you as Lord and King and that as a result we would be raised to live and to walk with you for our good and for the glory of the Father in Jesus name. (laughs) 